Welcome to Tibet Talks, a podcast series from the International Campaign for Tibet. You're about to hear the recording of a live conversation. We hope you enjoy the show. Tashi Belay, and welcome to Tibet Talks. I'm Ashwin Verghese of the International Campaign for Tibet. Thank you for joining us for today's program. Earlier this month, the world marked the 30th anniversary of World Press Freedom Day. According to the UN, the annual day, quote, acts as a reminder to governments of the need to respect their commitment to press freedom. Perhaps no government needs a stronger reminder of that than the government of China, which has made it immensely difficult for foreign journalists to do their jobs and report on what's happening inside the borders of the People's Republic of China. That is especially true in Tibet, which the Chinese government has illegally occupied for over six decades. The so-called Tibet Autonomous Region, which spans about half of Tibet, is the only region the PRC government requires foreign journalists to get special permission to enter. However, that permission is rarely granted. What's worse, many foreign journalists no longer even seem to be trying presumably because they know their requests will be rejected. In the Foreign Correspondence Club of China's most recent annual survey, only three foreign journalists said they applied to visit the TAR in 2022. All three were denied. That number is already small, but it's down from four requests and four rejections in 2021, as well as five requests and five rejections in 2019. But the TAR is not the only area where foreign journalists face restrictions. Other Tibetan areas are also largely closed off to the international press, with reporters on the ground saying they've been pulled off of buses, stopped by police, surveilled, and followed any time they've tried to report in Tibet. In response to these unfair policies, the U.S. government in 2018 passed the Reciprocal Access to Tibet Act, a bipartisan law that pushes China to give U.S. journalists, diplomats, and ordinary citizens the same level of access to Tibet that their Chinese counterparts enjoy in the United States. Under this law, the U.S. has banned several Chinese officials from entering the United States over their role in keeping Americans out of Tibet. However, China's restrictions on press freedom in Tibet remain in place. And now, Beijing is increasingly exploiting press freedom here in the United States and in other countries to spread disinformation about Tibet. On this episode of Tibet Talks, we're going to dive into the difficulties of reporting on Tibet and we'll get the lay of the land when it comes to China's policy toward international media from our guest for today's program. And I am pleased to introduce her to you now. She is the Senior Advisor for China, Hong Kong, and Taiwan at Freedom House. Before that, she was Freedom House's Research Director for China, Hong Kong, and Taiwan, in which capacity she directed the China Media Bulletin, a monthly digest in English and Chinese, providing news and analysis on media freedom developments related to China. Last year, she helped work on Freedom House's Global Media Influence 2022 report, 
which found that, quote, the Chinese government under the leadership of President Xi Jinping is accelerating a massive campaign to influence media outlets and news consumers around the world. The report adds, the possible future impact of these developments should not be underestimated. We are delighted to have our guests with us today to discuss this work, as well as the state of media freedom in Tibet. So please join me in welcoming our guest for this Tibet talk, Sarah Cook. Thank you so much. We're really delighted to have you with us today. I know you've been really busy, so thank you for taking some time for this. My pleasure. So Sarah, first of all, kind of an overall question for you. What is the general situation like for foreign journalists when it comes to reporting in the PRC? Well, conditions for foreign journalists in China are heavily restricted. They're some of the most difficult in the world, I would say, except for, say, in war zones, for example, that are dangerous for other reasons. And honestly, conditions have gotten worse over the last few years. I think what we've seen, particularly in the last couple of years, is with the zero COVID policies, there were certain restrictions and difficulties that arose because of those policies in terms of particularly the ability of foreign correspondents who are, say, based in Beijing or Shanghai to leave Beijing or Shanghai or to leave their apartment or to leave and be afraid that they wouldn't be able to come back. I think, though, then you also have the situation where the Chinese government and Chinese authorities were also very good at conveniently using zero COVID policies to keep people from going places they didn't want them to go. So one account, for example, in the Foreign Correspondents Club of China report that you quoted was of someone who tried to go to Sichuan, not even into the, to the TAR, and had all these negative COVID tests, and they basically said he couldn't, they couldn't, the, the reporter couldn't continue uh, with the reporting uh, trip because of, of COVID policy. So I think, I think that's one of the ways in which things have gotten more difficult. But even now, with the end of zero COVID policy, as you mentioned, it's been years since a foreign journalist was able to get approval to go into the TAR, and you, it's, it's just very difficult. Um, and again, even in other parts of China, we've seen other tactics emerge, kind of attempted interrogations on national security charges of journalists, sources who were, who were interviewed and agreed to be interviewed, but then suddenly come back later and threaten a lawsuit, which can be very damaging visa rejections. So some of the things that like were possible to do previously for foreign journalists in China in general have become more difficult. And there are fewer, and because of that, there are also fewer journalists, foreign journalists in China. So that number of fewer people trying to get access to Tibet may also just reflect the smaller contingent of foreign correspondents that are in China generally. Yeah, thank you for that. Definitely already some, some troubling anecdotes uh, just in that answer. But Let's put this into a global context. How does freedom in China compare to press freedom uh, around the globe? So, you know, the space for press freedom and freedom of expression in China is one of the most restrictive. Our annual Freedom on the Net Index that looks at internet freedom has found for seven years, I think, in a row that Chinese, the Chinese government was the worst abuser of internet freedom in the world of the 75 or 80 countries that we looked at. And I think, you know, we were talking about foreign correspondence, but really the first line of attack for the Chinese government are the Chinese and, and the recipients and the victims are the Chinese journalists. So there's a very robust bureaucratic mechanism for controlling media in China. Uh, in terms of just there's no private ownership, in terms of the dominance of Chinese state outlets, in terms of the way people get 
uh, Chinese journalists get accreditation to be journalists. And then, of course, you have the punitive side. You have, you know, people who end up in jail if they break the rules. You have the Chinese Communist Party's propaganda department issuing pretty much daily directives. So in addition to the kind of known taboos, right, which include ones related to Tibet, every time there's breaking news or something happening, basically the Communist Party's propaganda department sends out notices both to traditional media, but also to various websites that, that, and, and social media platforms on what they're able to, how they can manipulate uh, the conversation. And honestly, the China, in like all my years, and I've worked not only on China, I've worked on Vietnam, I mean, Freedom House looks globally. I, that's the only government that I know of that does that with any kind of regularity and, and consistency. Years ago, there were more leaks about those kinds of censorship directives and you know, I analyzed hundreds of them. Now even those leaks are much more difficult and, and you can't get information out. So I think that's where, you know, the situation in China was already bad, but it's gone from bad to worse. And I think if you look at just generally our, our freedom in the world scores, where we assess media freedom in every country around the world each year, in about 10 years ago, China was at a 17 out of 100, which is already pretty bad. If you're a student, you're not going to want to get a 17 out of 100 on a test. But now China's down to a nine. So I think you're taking, I'm talking about a country that was already so not free and is now even just half as free as what that was. And so I think that trajectory of closing space is what has really been felt by people throughout China, including in Tibet, over the last five to 10 years. Yeah, thank, thank you for sharing that. I mean, uh, of course, all of us did see some very troubling stories about what happened to a citizen journalist in China just during the pandemic itself. So you're right that the Chinese uh, journalists themselves are often victims of these policies as well. So let's shift our focus a little bit to, uh, to Tibet. And uh, I know you touched on this a little bit already, but even within China, the TAR, the Tibet Autonomous Region, is likely the least accessible area for foreign journalists. As I mentioned, it's the only area that the government requires journalists to get special permission to enter. Can you talk a little bit about what restrictions China places on journalists who do try to report uh, in the TAR? Well, as you said, most of the time they can't even get there. And then when they try to get even to some of the surrounding provinces, uh, again, they're likely to face all kinds of excuses and, and limitations on their ability. You know, they're followed. In one case, somebody was like the police drove them. <laughs> they missed that they couldn't get a flight back. And so the police drove them 11 hours to get to Chengdu so that they would have to leave Sichuan province. So you just see the amount of resources that the Chinese government devotes to stopping people from accessing information and people in Tibet. I think the other thing is, look, even if a journalist was able to reach it's very dangerous for anyone to talk to a foreign journalist, and it's very dangerous for them to talk virtually. A few years ago, there was a, a fellow, um, Tasha Wangchuk, who was sentenced to five years in prison, partly because he, he did some interviews with the New York Times even earlier than that. And that's, I think, that, that element of also the kind of retroactive punishment for things that when you did them, it was probably okay, but now the Chinese government has changed its tune. That's something we've seen very dramatically in, in Hong Kong in the last couple of years, but I think certainly also applies to Tibet. So I think it's also that even if journalists are able to get there, it's, it's so dangerous for someone local to speak to a foreign journalist. And then I think the other thing I would say is that, you know, and this is, a, you know, when, when you can't get professional journalists into a region, and I think even when you can, you know, so much is up to citizen journalists and ordinary people to try to send information out. 
And that's also so dangerous and so difficult for Tibetans and the people still do it, but it's, you know, but you have more and more controls by the Chinese government, checkpoints where they're checking their phones, other forms of manipulation. So for example, during the COVID lockdowns, and this is where you see the difference between say Tibet versus other parts of China, even though they have, despite that heavy censorship, you know, there was this massive lockdown in Shanghai, but there were posts on social media and we could see information when there were similar lockdowns in Tibet and Tibetans were trying to get information out, there was one of these censorship directives that the Communist Party sent out, basically telling social media platforms to shut it down uh, and to man essentially manipulate the hashtags, which again, they also do for other content. But I think in terms of that being even a life or death situation where people are running out of food, they're trying to get help, and, and that's where you really see the real cost of censorship. So, so I think that, again, in terms of the the even more limited space and the higher level of danger for people in Tibet, not just express views or have a picture of the of the of His Holiness Dalai Lama, for example, but simply to share information with people outside of the region or outside of the country, uh, the penalties are very harsh and it's very dangerous. Thank you for that. That uh, kind of segues nicely into into my next question. Uh, what you mentioned about the restrictions that were in place uh, during the zero COVID policies in Tibet and how uh, the dangers that Tibetans were facing at that time. This might sound kind of like a basic question, but just to kind of put it out there, why is it so important for journalists to be able to go to Tibet? How would not just Tibetans themselves, but also all of us in the news consuming public benefit from media access and press freedom in Tibet? So a few things. One, look, if the Chinese government is stopping you from doing something, it's probably important that you do it, right? <laughs> um, uh, it's one of those things, you know, if someone's hiding something, there's probably a reason for what they're hiding. So I think you can, you know, so I think that's just, just one, one element. I think, look, there's the element of just the human rights and humanitarian situation in, in Tibet and being able to have an international community know about what the conditions are there and be able to help people. Because look, as harsh as the Chinese government is, when there is pressure, when there are sanctions, and again, it's hard to get this kind of information from Tibet, but we know from other places in China, it makes a difference. And I've interviewed people who had been subjects of Amnesty International appeals and things like that and international pressure, including people like Falun Gong practitioners who are also among the most harshly persecuted Han Chinese. And I know this fellow was in a labor camp. It was like, you know, he was treated, he was detained twice. He was treated, treated better the second time than the first. He would, they were forced to do forced labor, but when he asked for like protective equipment, they gave it to him and he only realized, and they gave it to everyone in the room. So he only realized later that was because there were people outside asking about him. So I think, you know, so I think that's one of the reasons where getting that information can help the international community help the people in Tibet. But there are other reasons. Look, there's environmental implications in terms of what's happening in Tibet, in terms of rivers that run throughout Asia uh, that, that have many, many more lives dependent on them. Issues related to being able to, you know, have glaciers and global, you know, climate change and things like that. So there are a lot of things happening in this massive region that are of global importance, in addition to, you know, simply being able to, 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 to support and allow just, again, really, we're just talking life and death, you know, uh, situations. Uh, in terms of conditions in Tibet. So I think those are just a few few ways in which these restrictions uh, ha have very real consequences, both inside Tibet and, and beyond. 
Yeah, thank you. I think those are really some great examples. So Sarah, do you have any examples or anecdotes of journalists you've spoken to who've tried to report inside Tibet and you know what kind of experiences have they had? I haven't done as many interviews well recently with people yeah. who were trying to get to Tibet. I mean, I think like I said that that the anecdote of some of the, that was in the Foreign Correspondence Club of China report. And I would encourage anybody who's interested in this. It's a really eye-opening report. They do a survey every year. And they have quotes, both anonymous and not only from American journalists, but from foreign correspondents in Europe. And again, it's one of those things where when you read between the lines of the amount of time and effort and resources that the Chinese government devotes to stopping people from sometimes covering things that are just like, really, this is what the Chinese government is afraid about me knowing. It, it just it really highlights that level of not just repressiveness, but paranoia, honestly the Chinese government has vis-a-vis -vis its own people. But I would say I think one thing in general for foreign correspondents, and I think for media companies, uh, is just the sheer cost of maintaining somebody in China now, not only because of, say, cost, but because of the visa uncertainty. So sometimes you have to hire someone and keep them on staff for months and months and months before they can actually go start doing their job and get into China. Then also the Ministry of Foreign Affairs essentially controls the hiring of any local Chinese national who would help a foreign correspondent. And so that also has implications for this. So that's drivers, translators. So most foreign correspondents, some of them will speak Chinese, but they won't speak Tibetan. And then, and so then that's another way, even if you got, say, permission to go, and even if you were able to get there, if they won't let you get a driver, or if they intimidate the family of the translator at the last minute, or maybe they don't, and the translator goes with you, but then you don't want to be responsible for the person being detained and arrested. And those are things that after you leave, right? And those are some of the things that, that contribute, I think, to, you know, good reasons why a foreign correspondent might not want to, or a media company might not even want to try to apply, you know, in terms of those reducing numbers. Because the last thing they really want to do is put people in danger. And because of that control that the Ministry of Foreign Affairs has, over those positions specifically, and some arrests, reprisals, even charges that Han Chinese have faced as assistance, um, you can imagine what the potential consequences for a Tibetan who's a Chinese national. Yeah, thanks for that. You're absolutely right. It is really a very difficult situation. The government is putting these foreign journalists in where, of course, the last thing they want to do is hurt anybody themselves. But let's talk a little bit about the other side of this. China doesn't just keep journalists out of Tibet and doesn't just restrict them inside the PRC. Um, it is also now trying to influence news outlets and news consumers around the globe in this act of really great hypocrisy, like I was mentioning. Uh, and they're also trying to saturate foreign media outlets with Chinese propaganda. So last year, Freedom House, your organization, published a report about Beijing's global media influence. Can you talk to us? Uh, I know it's a, a big report, of course, but can you talk to us a little bit about the report and kind of generally what is China doing? What are some of the, the methods they're using? to influence media around the world, because I think this is a really important subject for all of us to learn about. So this was a really, it was a project, it's a topic I've been following for a while, and it was a really interesting project, because what we were able to do is actually do case studies on 30 countries around the world and look, work with local researchers. Again, people who have local language, who have local access to the local newsrooms. And again, speaking of kind of even dangers, even outside of China, most of the people who were interviewed for this project decided to be anonymous, because they, you know, they maybe do want to go to China or they don't want to get in trouble with their boss talking about some of the self-censorship or other dynamics that might happen. Um, I think one thing to, to mention is that 
you know, we def how we defined Beijing's global media influence. I think the first thing people think about is the Chinese state media and the propaganda and that you've got Facebook pages with all these millions of followers. And, and that's important, but that's actually just like a small sliver of the full toolbox. And even in terms of propaganda and state media, one of the things, major findings we found is that the way that their content reaches local audiences is actually through partnerships with local news out, mainstream news outlets or through the ambassador getting on TV. Because actually most people, are, even if it's on cable, they're not going to turn to CGTN, even CGTN Espanol or whatever it is, right? So then, but then these outlets make partnerships, sometimes with payments, sometimes without. And so that, like, for example, in India, there were inserts from the Chinese embassy in like some of, you know, English language newspapers that are among the most read in the world with millions and millions of, of read, daily readers. So... They, they just really, it's called barring the boat to reach the sea. That's what they call it. And it's like basically piggybacking. And that's how they really reach massive audiences. But then you do also have the censorship pressures. And some of that is the pressure on foreign correspondents. Because actually, because there are so few foreign correspondents, and especially for the global south, most outlets can't afford to have, send global correspondents. The, the, the restrictions on them have a major multiplier effect on international news because a local journalist in Kenya or in the Philippines who doesn't have a correspondent or Peru, basically they're going to take AFP or Reuters or, or uh, especially the news, news wires. So that was one thing I think that, that was very clear in terms of both the use of those wires as a counterbalance to the Beijing's propaganda, but also that multiplier effect of the restrictions on on, on foreign correspondent. So you've got propaganda, you've got censorship, then you've got disinformation. And we define that as the spreading of falsehoods, especially, but not only when it's in connection with fake accounts and bots and things like that on social media platforms. And we essentially found that the Chinese government had spread some form of falsehoods in all 30 of the countries that we, we looked at, including related to, to, to Tibet, as I recall. And then you've got the control over the content in infrastructure. So you've got apps, you've got mobile phone infrastructure that companies that are China-based, but not just that they're Chinese companies, they have close ties to the CCP. They have heads that are CCP members, that, you know, that they're controlling actually what can and cannot be shared on digital television, again, on certain apps in other countries. And then lastly, you've got a little bit of an export machine where the Chinese government is trying to train officials on kind of how to do news management. And that we didn't see as much. We were looking at countries that are more on the democratic end of the spectrum. I think when you get to more autocratic and less free countries. So that's what we mean by Beijing's global influence. And that wasn't just the methodology we used. That's what we found examples of in all of these countries. And I think in particular, you see increasing investment intensification. You see that element of the inserting the content and working through local media or co-opting local elites and then having them repeat and spread Chinese government propaganda and talking points. You have the censorship and intimidation, not just of foreign correspondents, but actually in 24 of the 30 countries, we found some example of censorship or intimidation that happened outside of, the, outside of China. And then you've got all of this type of manipulation on social media. So it's not just a social media presence. A lot of times the labeling isn't clear, the affiliation isn't clear. And that's true for some of the content in traditional media too. So I, I can speak more about it, but I would say in general, what we found is that there's increasing investment from Beijing in these efforts. It's a wide spectrum and toolkit of tactics. 
On the flip side, the, the report was called Authoritarian Expansion and the Power of Democratic Resilience. And there was an upshot to that where I think compared to even just five years ago, let alone 10 years ago, there was a lot more of a response, at least in democratic societies, and not only by governments. Actually, in most countries, uh, it was from the media. It was from the editors themselves, or it was from civil society. It was forensic or analysis and exposure of disinformation. It was using freedom of information requests to expose certain types of problematic influence. So I think that's really encouraging. And so actually, despite all of these efforts in the period we were looking at since 2018, the Chinese government's reputation declined in most of the kind of like 23 out of the 30 countries. So I think we want to take seriously the, again, the threat and the resources that they're investing, but we really shouldn't underestimate the power of pushback either. Yeah. Thank you for that. And that, and that kind of segues well into my next question too, but just real quickly, I just want to mention, yeah, it is a really important report for people to read. Um, I highly encourage everybody to go to Freedom House's website to check it out. And we'll make sure to share the link to in the chat on our uh, Facebook Live post. And I think there was another uh, just recent report published uh, last week, I believe, on the media influence specifically in the United States, right? So that's another one that people should check out. Like I said, please go to Freedom House's website and take a look at those. Um, but kind of, you know, getting to the, the democratic resilience and the way people can kind of push back on some of these things. So what are some policy solutions or actions that governments, civil society groups, and uh, even ordinary citizens can take to address these important issues? What can be done to create leverage? And, uh, and even in specifically in the case of Tibet, what, can things be done to try to kind of get better reporting from Tibet? Uh, that, that's a good question. And again, I think we shouldn't, uh, I, I, look, I think there's some, been some proven uh, approaches. I think, unfortunately, some of that space is closing too now. But really, like, I think if you're talking about outlets like Radio Free Asia, for example, their journalists are very good at getting information out of Tibet, at in Tibetan, at making phone calls to local police to get them to admit things. The Uyghur service is also very good at doing that in the Uyghur regions. I think, and, and they're not, you know, again, foreign media... Other foreign, you know, mainstream media, they don't have Tibet speakers in a lot of cases. So actually, one of our recommendations in that report was to diversify newsrooms. And we were talking more about Chinese language speakers, but having more Tibetan Uyghur speakers can be important, too. I think the other thing is, like, honestly, you'd be surprised as what you can find on local Chinese government websites when you know how to dig. And I think they're on, often like they'll give their annual report on their security work or whatever it is. And if you read between the line, it's actually very candid and explicit about the kind of restrictions they're placing on local residents. Um, and I've done this in regions, maybe more in regions outside of China, but I mean, outside of Tibet, in other parts of China. But I think you do see people coming across that in Tibet, bidding tenders for surveillance equipment, for DNA. So if you actually look at some of the really good investigative research and investigative journalism that's been done, there was a big report by Citizen Lab about DNA, I think, um, and surveillance. IVPM is very good. It finds these like surveillance you know, alarms and things like that. Um, so again, there's actually quite a lot on the Chinese internet. You have to, and so I think those are investing more in a helping people have the time. It takes time to find that, and then it takes time to process it. And it's one of those things that some of it can be done by automated language learning, but again, a lot of it is reading between the lines. So you have to know, and it's all in CCP speak, right? So you have to kind of know uh, what you're looking for. I don't know that you could outsource it to ChatGPT or something like that, but you do need to you do need to be able to. 
uh, archive it and capture it because that's one of the things that's disappearing now is access to certain kinds of databases. Court verdicts, when we did a big report a few years ago on religion in China, including a chapter on Tibetan Buddhism, we were able to access and download court verdicts from different parts of China based on certain provisions and things like that. And those, again, are very revealing. You learn a lot about surveillance from court verdicts, right? Because they have to say what the, quote, evidence is that they're using against people. So, so I think there's a lot of open source information that's available. It just takes time to dig, so you want to have the resources for that. I think for governments, in terms of this element of kind of targeted sanctioning, especially against officials who are responsible for certain abuses, it does have leverage, especially when you're talking about coming to visit a country like the United States. People, they want their, they send their high-level officials, send their kids here to study. And, and I think in terms of having some level of accountability, that is impossible otherwise is really important. And again, anecdotally, we hear, even when there are sanctions imposed in one region, locals, if they can hear about it, including through services like VOA, VOA or RFA, they tell the local police, you know, so-and-so just got sanctioned by the U.S. government. You want to be able to go visit Disneyland and take your kid there? You know, you better not keep persecuting this person. And it seems to work sometimes. People might get released. They might go a little bit easier. You know, because there's all kinds of localized incentives, too. And a lot of times, even the locals, they, you know, some of them may not want to persecute people. They just have their boss breathing down their neck themselves. So so I, I think those types of things, like targeted sanctions, can be very important. And then, you know, I think for ordinary citizens, look, I think just sharing information when it's out. I mean, there's always a lag, especially individual prisoners. If you can write letters and write letters to, like, not just like to Xi Jinping or get your member of Congress to write, but write to like the local official, the county head, the prison head, the, the provincial head. Those are people that are not as used to getting these kinds of letters and might be more freaked out about it. And of course, the whole judicial system in China is very politicized. So if someone's been detained and you want to influence their verdict before they're sentenced, you know, getting some kind of international pressure and awareness raising you know, can potentially get them a, a lesser sentence. So the Chinese government is becoming a bit more immune to that than it used to be. It, it still helps people, it protects them in custody even if they're in prison. And again, it can save people's lives, get them on medical parole. Um, so th those, are, those are a few thoughts about what, you know, different people in different sectors can do. But yeah, there's a whole page of sure. recommendations. There's also a whole page of recommendations yeah. in that report if people want to take a look. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think we've uh, shared the uh, link in our chat now. So yeah, like I said, please do take a look at the report. And uh, thank you for that message, because, you know, you're right, it's it's not a hopeless situation. You know, there are things that we can do here to try to improve things. And uh, so to kind of wrap up this part of the conversation on the positive note, I know you touched on this a little bit already, but as hard as it is to get information out of Tibet, there are still journalists who do it. Uh, particularly, like you mentioned, uh, people working for broadcasters like Radio Free Asia and Voice of America, which do a great job of keeping the world informed about what's happening inside Tibet. Can you comment a little bit about like how is it possible for the media to even find out what's happening in a place that's as restrictive as Tibet and what can be done to, to support those efforts? Yeah, like I said, I think, look, I think being able to make phone calls, you know, it gets tricky and it can put people in danger. Though a lot of times it's that they're calling police. I think, look, you do see people in Tibet to their, you know, to their credit, also feeling they want to send information out and they get caught sometimes, but sometimes they don't. It's, I, I think, I think that's where when, when information comes out, 
it is really important to try to spread because somebody went to a lot of risk and danger, even if they didn't get arrested for it. You know, they, they really took their lives and their freedom and their fa family's freedom. And that, you know, that's something that, you know, deserves at the very least the respect that we, we read it, we listen to it, we take it seriously and we share it in a way that, that, that just me sitting in my, my house in New York, if I tweet it, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to get arrested for that. So I'm, you know, I'm able to do things that other people can't. So I, I think that's one element that's useful to keep in mind. And then I think, yeah, I think the resources to make sure that these outlets have the resources and the staff, I think also just the training and the lessons learned um, and just having more forum for people who are working in this space to exchange how they found information and what seemed to work and what's what you know and what they were able to do that can be very fruitful because that allows also for replication. Yeah, thank thank you for that. And uh, you're absolutely right. Those of us who do have freedom of speech, who do have freedom of the press, we do need to exercise those rights, especially when we can do so in a way that's supporting people who are taking a risk by trying to exercise those innate human rights that they're entitled to. So thanks so much for this conversation, Sarah. Uh, I'd like to turn it now to our audience questions. Um, so firstly, we have a question from Tenzin Dorji from California. And Tenzin writes, given the draconian foreign press restrictions and state-of-the-art surveillance in the PRC and Tibet, where do the global media get their information on what's going on in Tibet, especially the TAR? What can be done? Um, I know this is kind of something that we've already touched on a little bit during the course of the conversation, but if you have any additional thoughts. Look, I think I think a few places, and it's been a while since I looked very closely at international coverage of Tibet, but a few things I'll say. One is, honestly, the bloggers and Tibetans, and I think also people who are like bridge bloggers, they're called who will take content in Tibet or that is still circulating in Tibet. And there used to be a lot more Tibetan content on the Chinese internet. And that's one of the things that becomes more has become much more restrictive. But people who are taking to get Tibetan content, either who are inside Tibet or outside Tibet, and just translating it and 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 publicizing it, I think that's one place. I think the others, honestly, groups like International Campaign for Tibet or others, or like Citizen Lab did that report on on the DNA or Tibetan Center for Human Rights and Democracy in Dharmasala, you know, when they public when they document and publish from their networks uh where they can maybe help people be anonymous and then but do fact checking and other verification and have themselves become a trusted source that actually often will become the source of information that international uh, media will report from especially back when there were more self-immolations or when there's, especially when there's a chance where they'll find some policy document, some new piece of legislation, that it's usually, I think, groups that are really focused on this issue that detect that, put it out on social media, put it out on their email networks, maybe know some of these journalists and have, again, gained credibility. And that becomes a real, and then that snowballs, basically, into the international coverage. And I think to your earlier question, Ashwin, I'll put in a plug for you guys that it's also important for various agencies to really support think tank work and NGO work and working with refugees too when they can come out. There are many fewer coming out now than there were to be able to get these testimonies and this news because the civil society, in addition to journalists, especially in such a closed environment, plays a really important you know, role in getting that information out and amplifying. I have a question here from John who writes, on some occasions, China allows selected foreign reporters 
to enter Tibet and participate in highly scripted tours and interviews. You know, I have seen accounts of this in the media as well. What do you make of this method of reporting? This was something that we saw not only related to Tibet, of course, in the period we were looking at for the Beijing's Global Media Influence Report, Xinjiang was a big focus of taking these kinds of tours to the region and even to these vocational training centers, these detention camps. I think there's a uh, few things. I think one is, you know, this question, if a journalist get the ethical considerations, if a journalist gets invited on something like this, should they go? You know, there's a question of whether you should go or not. I think if you want to go, especially when they're so hard to access, go. Then there's the question, how might you be used domestically for propaganda? So being very careful what interviews you do with Chinese state media or say that might be used domestically. So being very careful about that. Two is what you write when you come out and how candid you are about the circumstances of your trip. And I think sometimes you've seen people come back, and this isn't just international media, there was a Jordanian journalist who came out from one of these trips to Xinjiang and wrote very candidly about the problems. Ghanaian journalists who went on these trips and came back being like, whoa, the Chinese government's really oppressive actually, right? So I think sometimes it can really backfire for the Chinese government, but I think what they're trying to get are these puff, puff pieces, right, that you know, that whitewash abuses, that don't ask critical questions. And so I think the most problematic is when someone comes out and then writes a piece and doesn't indicate in the piece that this was from a Chinese government-sponsored trip or anything like that. You know, and you, and you see that unfortunately happening more than you'd like, but I wouldn't actually, but you also see the other kind. Again, with people coming out and being, and actually, again, backfiring for the Chinese government, I think, in terms of how it affects their own views we're like, whoa, all these things we heard about the Chinese government is really true. I think the other thing is if somebody is going on a trip like that, they, whether before or after, they should make an effort to reach out, let's say in Tibet, to ICT, to TCHRD, read their reports, talk to them, say, what should I look for? You know, what should I be aware of? What might be some of the main talking points they might? And then you're going in with just like a clearer viewpoint. And then even if you write about the trip, you're able to help inform your reader and be like, look, this is what I saw, but this is what they didn't show me, right? Or reading between the lines or knowing the basic geography. They took me here, but by the way, 10 miles that way is this camp, this prison where there are, you know, dozens of Tibetan monks that are being held, right? Or this monastery where the Communist Party's been put in charge, right? So I think a little bit of that type of like homework and trying to incorporate that into any stories people write I think that can actually like be more informative than if you don't maybe potentially even don't go on the trip at all, even for your readers. So I, I think just being really open eyed and transparent and, and thoughtful uh, to present as accurate as possible a picture and be very skeptical because I've also interviewed people again, these were not from Tibet, from China, who were actually in labor camps when some UN tour or something came and you know who was selected to meet was very specific. People have been abused and tortured, removed to another part. It's, it's definitely a Potemkin tour. Yeah, thank you. I think that's a very thoughtful answer. So I really appreciate that. One kind of last call here for questions. If anybody has any, please do share them. Um, if not, I have one more question here for you. China has sometimes claimed that it needs to restrict access to Tibet for foreigners because of the high altitude. Does that strike you as a realistic concern or is it more of a pretext? And I will say to me, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the, uh, the reporter you mentioned who had all the negative COVID tests and was still told can't go because of COVID. What's your reaction to that? It's not 
clear to me why, I don't know, if Xi Jinping wants to go to Tibet, is the high altitude not going to be a problem <laughs> for him too, right? I think there'll be all kinds of excuses they, they will try to make to keep people out. Um, but unfortunately, it is a region that's difficult to access, and there's only so much a foreign journalist can do to get there. But I think, again, trying to see what kind of workarounds, including the amount of information that's on uh, and again, I actually haven't, I'm not as familiar with what's available in Tibetan. A lot of that local reporting government, it, you know, they, they don't expect people from the outside to read it and it can be very self-incriminating. Uh, let's, let's, let's put it that way. Well, thank you, Sarah, so much. I think this has been a really informative discussion for all of our viewers. So we really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Really enjoyed it. So thank you so much for that. Um, with that, we are just about, just about out of time for this episode of Tibet Talk. So I'd like to, again, thank Sarah Cook from Freedom House for being here. And please, like I mentioned, check out Freedom House's reports on uh, media and uh, China's global media influence. And uh, thank you so much to all of you for watching this and listening to this. Before we go, I do have some other positive news to share with all of you. So the Promoting a Resolution to the Tibet-China Conflict Act, the bipartisan bill that our community of compassion has been throwing its full weight behind, now has over 25 co-sponsors in the House of Representatives. So very exciting news for getting that piece of legislation passed. Many of you watching this know this bill can help restart the dialogue process between the Chinese government and His Holiness the Dalai Lama's envoys by recognizing that Tibetans have the right to self-determination and that Tibet's legal status is yet to be determined under international law. But for that to happen, we first need your help to get the Resolve Tibet Act signed into law. If you haven't done so already, Please sign ICT's petition now, asking your senators and representatives to support the legislation. Visit www.savetibet.org slash resolve Tibet and add your name today. So with that, we have reached the end of the show. Thank you again, Sarah, and thanks to all of you. We'll be back next month with another episode of Tibet Talks. Until then, as our first guest on this program, Professor Tenzin Dorji likes to say, stay safe, stay well, and stay active. Thank you and to Jache. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tibet Talks. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Learn more at savetibet.org slash pod. To find out how you can get involved in our efforts to promote human rights and democratic freedoms for the people of Tibet, please visit SaveTibet.org slash support. Thank you, and see you next time on Tibet Talks.